0: reading this evening comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 to 15. If you're following along in your pew Bibles, that's on page 1018. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. This is the word of the Lord. There's a peace that comes from feeling assured about something. When you make a big purchase and you're promised your money back guarantee, you're promised a warranty, you feel assured, you feel at peace. When Henry Ford began selling the revolutionary Model T in 1908, the only assurance that was offered to consumers was the Ford reputation, the Ford name you only had the personal promise of Henry Ford that his Model T was built to last. And by and large, they did last, and so the Henry Ford name brought you some assurance. You could rest assured that buying a Ford wouldn't wind you up in the hole. Now when it comes to the Christian life, there is an even greater name and an even greater assurance. When God promises you that he numbers the hairs on your head, and when he promises you that he has sealed you for the day of redemption, his promises are guaranteed. There is no greater promise maker or promise keeper than God himself Because God promises by his own name, Hebrews 6, verse 13, and because God cannot lie by definition of who he is in his character, Numbers 23, you can trust every promise of God. You can trust every word of scripture. You can have full assurance that if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You can stake your life on everything that God says because it is true, because he is God. Well, we just have two points this evening. Firstly, the assurance of salvation. And secondly, the need to be reminded. So firstly, the assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation. What, how, how are we assured that we are saved? Last Sunday evening, we saw that saving faith is always a fruitful faith. If you have been saved by grace through faith, you will grow in sanctification day by day. You will look more like Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. There are two old but wonderful words that capture the work of the Spirit within us. Vivification and mortification. And you can keep those in your back pocket. Vivification and mortification. Vivification, you are living to Christ. You're growing in all these things that Peter has mentioned. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. And you can only do this because you have been made a partaker of the divine nature. You are united to Christ first. The second part of sanctification is mortification. Mortification means you're dying to sin. You're not only living unto Christ, but you are dying to sin, you are killing sin, you are killing those lustful thoughts, killing pride, killing hatred, killing envy. This is what sanctification looks like, Peter says. Both of these things, vivification, mortification. And then what Peter says in verses eight to 11 of our text is that there is a great gospel comfort that accompanies your sanctification. And that gospel comfort, brothers and sisters, is that our sanctification, our very growth in holiness is Is itself an assurance of our salvation? Have you ever had doubts about your faith? Have you ever felt unsure if you were really saved? Of course, we've all had doubts at times, and like Thomas, we repent of our lack of faith and simply cry, I believe, help my unbelief. But there is something we can point to, something substantial, something tangible, something that assures us that we have been sealed for the day of redemption. Peter says in verses 8 to 11 that the thing that assures us is the fruit of our faith. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, verse eight. If these Christian virtues that Peter mentions are present in your life, they keep you from being ineffective. In other words, they demonstrate that your faith is effective. Jesus describes this effective faith in Matthew chapter seven, where he talks about a tree and its fruit. If you are a good tree, Jesus says, you will by good and necessary consequence, by virtue of being a good tree, you will bear good fruit. Jesus, this is what Jesus says. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And so we can examine the fruit of our lives and ask ourselves, am I bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? And as we see the evidence of fruit in our life, as we see the evidence of God's grace at work in us who are frail creatures, we can grow in gospel comfort. We can find a profound assurance that God is at work in our lives, that we have been sealed with his name, that nothing can snatch us out of his hand. And at the same time, while we do examine the fruit of our lives, we must be on guard against spiritual pride. We cannot, on the one hand, look at the fruit of our faith and be impressed with ourselves. Self-righteousness is the great enemy of of the gospel and we are all tempted to do that at times to navel-gaze to think more highly of ourselves than we ought but we must give no opportunity for the flesh the way we, the way that we must think about the fruit of our faith is the way the apostle Paul describes when he says let the one who boasts boast in the lord You see, if we think highly of ourselves, we need to think again. But for God's grace, can we who abide in Christ bear good fruit? We are fallen creatures. We simply carry this treasure in jars of clay. We are imperfect and needy sinners, but we still must examine our hearts. And while we examine them, we must remember that the fruit of our faith is never the thing that saves us. It is by faith alone and Christ alone that we receive this gift of God's grace. But that faith is never alone, as Martin Luther once said. Saving faith is always accompanied by the fruit of righteousness. Peter says as much in verse nine. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So nearsighted. That Greek word is related to the word myopic. John Calvin describes this as a naked faith. To, To claim Christ but to live in disobedience is myopic. It is spiritual blindness. We as Christians, must live our lives with our eyes wide open, with our eyes firmly fixed on the things that are above. We are to remain spiritually wide awake. I think one of the great dangers facing the church at large today is spiritual slumber. We are facing this exact issue of spiritual nearsightedness. We, we often pay lip service to the truth of God's word, But do we really live it out in our hearts and in our lives? Brothers and sisters, we must be on guard against dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy is simply knowing the right things, but never truly living it out. And sometimes we don't live it out because we're hard hearted, but other times we don't live it out because. We have fear of man. And God is calling you this evening to have courage, to have courage to live out this calling, to have courage to trust God's word above the words of men, to have courage to listen to the Bible in an age where we are only told to listen to ourselves, to have courage to remember that we are exiles here on earth, that our eyes are fixed on that better country. The Jerusalem above. Peter continues his exhortation in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Well, what does this mean? How, how do we confirm our calling and election? I thought our calling and election are secured only by God himself, Well, I want you to notice that phrase, be all the more diligent. In the Greek, it's in the middle voice, and this is really quite significant. This isn't just boring grammar or semantics. It's very significant because it highlights that the agency of diligence, of diligence the agency of diligence is not just placed in you and I. The ultimate agency of diligence is placed Upon God Himself. Look at the entire movement of Second Peter chapter one. His divine power has granted to us. He has granted to us his very great and precious promises. He has made us partakers of the divine nature. Right, Peter only establishes first what God has done. And only then does he go on to the imperatives. For this reason, make every effort. And isn't this a great comfort to you and I? If our calling and our election were just based on our diligence, on our ability to follow through, who could stand? Who could endure? Who could press on? Who could run the race with endurance? If you're here this evening and you're wrestling with your faith, this is a word for you. Maybe your whole life you have thought that the Christian life is all about your diligence, is all about your abilities. And I want you to hear what the Apostle Peter is saying. God first works in you by his grace. We simply respond in faith. And as we respond in faith, as we look to him, as we we seek to walk in obedience and in holiness, we receive assurance of salvation as we see the fruit of that faith in our lives. This is a wonderful thing. And if you practice these qualities, says Peter, in other words, if you are growing in sanctification, you will never fall, verse 10 Of course, we all stumble in many ways, says James chapter three, verse two, but the kind of falling that Peter is talking about here isn't the stumbling that we face day in and day out. No, the kind of falling away that Peter is talking about is finally falling away from grace. Peter says, if God has set his love upon you from before the foundation of the world, you will not finally fall. We see this in the Apostle Paul's golden chain in Romans chapter eight, verse 30. This, this idea that you will not finally fall. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, you will never You will never fall away if you are in Christ. Never. And you have the assurance of salvation as evidenced by the work of his Holy Spirit in your life. The reformed doctrine, the reformed understanding of God's word, it it gives us an abiding peace. God is not fickle. God is not capricious. God does not change his mind. God's, God's flower is not the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. No, God's flower is the tulip, right? The reformed flower. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the, fa- uh, of the saints, The reformed understanding of election and calling assures to us that those who are sealed will not fall away, but will press on and will be ready to meet their savior, the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, on that last day. And we persevere not because of our own diligence, but because of God's diligence to us, God's work in us. It's all his mercy, it's all his grace. Verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, in this way, as we respond to God's electing grace in our lives by faith, we will one day be glorified. And this word, richly provided, is actually the same word that is used in verse 5 for supplement. And so what we can say is that uh, in the beginning part of chapter 1, though we are called to abundantly seek, to abundantly supplement, it is God who ultimately abundantly provides. Though we are called to abundantly furnish our faith with virtue, it is ultimately God who abundantly furnishes us with his eternal glory. As one New Testament theologian, Richard Bockham, puts it, final salvation is not man's achievement, but the gift of God's lavish generosity. Well, secondly, in the text, we see the need to be reminded. After pointing our gaze to what awaits us in glory, Peter then gives us a little bit of an insight into his philosophy of ministry. I think there's much that we can learn here in verses 12 to 15. Look with me there. Uh, Peter is aware that he will die soon. And what is it that he chooses to say to the church? He urges the church to remember. The apostle, Paul t- or the apostle Peter tells us that sometimes we as the church, we as the people of God, have spiritual amnesia. Look with me at the text. Therefore, I intend always to remind, to remind you of these qualities, verse 12. I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder, verse 13. I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Verse 15. Brothers and sisters, how quickly are we, how quickly are we to forget what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. How quickly do we gloss over the, the vastness of his mercy, the riches of his grace? How, how often do we read the scriptures which are described in the Bible as far more precious than gold and silver? How, how often do we just gloss over these words of everlasting life and move on to the next thing? Brothers and sisters, to be a Christian is to continually remind ourselves of our great need, our great sin, and our great God and Savior. Every preacher is tasked with this ministry, the ministry of continually reminding God's people that we are sinners desperately in need of God's grace. Martin Luther once gave some advice to a young preacher, Young reformer Philip Melanchthon, as he was starting out his preaching ministry, Luther said to him, Always preach in such a way that if the people listening do not come to hate their sin, they will instead hate you. Well, I hope that none of you ever hate me, but if you do, I pray that it is because I only preached Christ Jesus and Him crucified. But what every pastor, every preacher, every shepherd of God's people is is tasked with doing is, is reminding God's people that we were not just undeserving of God's grace. No, in fact, we were hell deserving. We deserve the just judgment for our sin. And yet God in his love sent his son into the world to die on a cross so that you and I could have everlasting life if we believe upon him. Sometimes in our sinful flesh, we think that we're above being reminded. We think that we've graduated in the Christian life. We think that uh, we've arrived, that we don't need to hear anymore about our death sickness called sin. And if that's you this evening, I want you to know that hearing about your sin and about the remedy for your sin, which is the gospel, hearing about those things is just as important today as it was on the day of your new birth. We constantly need to be reminded that we are sinners in need of repentance and that in Christ, through his gospel, we are forgiven. When I was a young boy, I took piano lessons and I didn't really enjoy them. And my teacher would always get on my case. She would say, Josiah, you really need to keep practicing your scales. And scales, just so you know, are, are you know, going up and down the piano. They're rudimentary, uh, rudimentary skills that you need to practice in order to advance. Uh, and after a few years, my my, my teacher still hadn't changed her tune and I said, look, do I still really have to practice my scales? I, I could play full songs now, I can sight read, do I, do I really need to, to keep playing my scales? And she said to me, you will only need to practice your scales more the longer you play the piano. You will only need to practice your scales more the longer you play the piano. And brothers and sisters, this is most certainly true for us in the Christian life. We will only need to rehearse the basics. We will only re- need to rehearse the scales, the rudimentary principles of the Christian life over and over again the more we plod along in our earthly pilgrimage. And one of the great joys of the Christian life is that the Lord's Day service, worship itself, is a rehearsal. It is a rehearsal of that great drama. If you think about the way that uh, our service is structured, even this evening, you, you can see this uh, in your bulletin. The, the, the Lord's service is gospel boot camp, it's built upon the rhythms of the gospel. What we, we, we come to worship, God calls us into his presence. We come before his throne aware that he is a holy God, aware of his holiness in our sin. We confess, we we seek his mercy and grace. We confess all the ways we fall short. We confess our evil thoughts, our evil desires. And then we hear and receive the gospel's assurance of pardon, that Christ forgives all who repent because his blood has atoned for their every sin. We then sing God's praises. We magnify Him for His mercy as we sing the doxology. Then our faith is is built up as the Spirit applies God's Word to our lives through the preaching of His Word. And through the preaching of the Word, the table of the Lord is set. And as we feast on Christ by faith, as we partake, our, our souls are nourished. And as we receive God's blessing, we go out into the world bearing his name that has been placed upon us and sealed upon us first in our baptism. And so you see that even worship itself, even what we're doing here this evening, which is a matter of eternal consequence, even what we're doing is in some ways a reminder. It's reorienting our gaze, reminding us that we are both sinners and at the same time justified. And that tension will exist, that paradox will exist until the day the Lord takes us home and he glorifies us when, until the day when we are ultimately vivified, when we are ultimately made alive unto the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see in Peter as well is this urgency to remind God's people because of his impending death. Because death always lurks, always awaits everyone. Peter has all the more urgency to remind us of these things. Look at, look at the way Peter speaks about his death, verse 14. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. You see, Peter speaks with such boldness because he knows that he is a dying man. He is a dying man preaching to dying souls. And there's a golden theological nugget here for us in verse 14. In the original Greek text, the word that is used there is tent. I know that the putting off of my tent will be soon. I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. What, what, what a countercultural way to speak about death. The putting off of my tent. Will be soon. What What does Peter mean here? Well, Peter means that though though our flesh passes away, our souls shall endure forever. So many of us live in paralyzing fear of that great enemy, death. And sometimes we think or even talk about death, perhaps subconsciously in unbiblical ways. We we say things like. Death is passing away. But according to the Bible, when we die, we never pass away into the ether. When we die, we never pass away into the oblivion. No, for the Christian, when we die, we are just falling asleep. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, If we are in Christ, we we do not pass away. We simply fall asleep. And when we die, our souls are immediately in the presence of God. And our bodies remain asleep until the day of judgment. So according to the Apostle Peter, we need to be reminded and to remind ourselves of gospel truths because our time is very short we are not even guaranteed tomorrow. We, we could die on our way home tonight in a tragic car accident. And we need to remember that. We need to not live in fear of death. But we must live with the end in mind. And we must remember that Jesus knocks on the door of your heart And mind. And there is a sense of urgency as death lingers, as death remains imminent for all of us. Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart with urgency. Listen to Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. If you are here this evening and you desire wisdom, if you are here this evening and you desire understanding, if you are here this evening and you you desire to live a good life, Peter is telling us live Like there is no tomorrow. Live with an eye towards the end. Live with an eye towards eternity. Too often we get stuck up in the frivolous things. We get hung up on trivial matters. We lose sight of what's to come. And God is saying to you this evening, My son, my daughter, Fix your eyes on me. Fix your eyes on me because this world is passing away, your flesh is transient, and you will soon be but a breath. And even as we strive towards the goal, we do not look to our own righteousness for salvation. We look to the righteousness of the one who put on his tent who put on his body, who took flesh and tabernacled among us, who dwelt among us. We look to the righteousness of Jesus Christ who came into this world in the form of frail flesh so that he might redeem our frail flesh from sin and death. He became like the grass that withers so that we who are grass could live forever. The advent of Jesus Christ is something we can never remind ourselves of enough. His incarnation, his humiliation, his torment, his suffering, all for our sake. What a savior we have. What a friend. What a king. What a child. Hallelujah. Praise him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the great salvation secured for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have assurance that we have been sealed for the day of redemption. Lord, I pray for each person here that they would greater rest in those gospel promises that though we fall short each and every day, your grace is sufficient, your gospel covers a multitude of our iniquities because Jesus has died for us and we believe upon him. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.